But this time, let's turn in our Bibles to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 7 and 8. We'll be reading both of these chapters, Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah chapter 8. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out, out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you, Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of His wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in My sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by My name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought, and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, 
says the Lord of hosts. Moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times, and the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall in the time of their punishment. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble. The snorting of His horses was heard from Dan the whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of His strong ones. For they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. 
astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we just read from Jeremiah, focusing our attention upon Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Jeremiah 8, verse 20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Are there any more terrifying words in all the Bible than these? These words that we find on the lips of God's people reflecting upon their unsaved condition. It's very possible that Jeremiah is speaking this and saying we in the sense of including himself with the people, but uh, I, I think it's slightly more than probable that this is the statement that's made by the people who have rejected Jeremiah's ministry. We'll see that in a moment. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved frightening, chilling words to be on the lips of anyone, to be reflecting upon a missed spiritual opportunity that has now come and gone, and to be reflecting in utter despair and hopelessness that we are not saved. It's not just one individual here, it's a plurality. We are not saved, not just one person who's not saved, but it's many people who are not saved. Many people that in this context are members of the professing covenant community of God in the Old Testament. Israelites, uh, members of the house of Judah, the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, where God's people worshiped at the temple. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, And we, all of us, many of us, are not saved. Terrifying. Frightening. Well, let's consider the meaning of this verse in its context. We are in the book of Jeremiah. And at this point in his prophecy, it's roughly 600 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So around 600 B.C., Very likely soon after the death of Josiah, the godly king who came to power and it was through his efforts that the kingdom of Judah was purged for a time of idolatry and the word and ordinances of Jehovah were spread and multiplied throughout the land in a way that had not been seen for quite a long time. And yet Josiah is now dead. He died around 608 B.C., and so it's in the aftermath, the several years after that, that Jeremiah is now preaching in a much different situation because with the death of Josiah 
the kingdom of Judah went into a period of rapid spiritual, religious, and moral decline. They were filled, as we heard in the words of the prophet in our scripture reading, they were filled with wickedness and idolatry and hypocrisy. Now, how does this factor into our text? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Well, we're to understand that there was a season of harvest, a season of summertime, of the pleasant days of harvest in a spiritual sense in the land under Josiah. That this period of time lasted for decades. Josiah led the nation in repentance and in worship. And certainly, as we'll see in a moment, it's not all that it could have been, but it was a season of spiritual opportunity and blessing for the people of God. Many gospel seeds were sown. Second Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 17 says that under Josiah, the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Now understand, Josiah is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah and there are children of Israel that are coming from the northern tribes that had been conquered over a century prior to this by the Assyrians and yet there are still some people living in those regions and they're able to receive Uh, we could say communicant members, participants in the Passover from these conquered northern tribes. So it's not just the tribe of Judah, but the children of Israel that are coming to this Passover. Verse 18, there had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We're told that was in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah. So there was still quite a bit of time left during this season of spiritual opportunity. But these were days of spiritual blessing that Israel had not seen for centuries, even the whole way back to Samuel. There were elements of spiritual opportunity and blessing that had not even been present in the days of David and Solomon in terms of that particular Passover festival. But all of that ended with the death of Josiah at age 38 or 39 years old. It ended suddenly. And then came a season of judgment. A season of rapid spiritual and moral decline and of God giving over His rebellious people to their own wicked lusts and giving them over into the hands of the children and uh, heirs of Josiah who were wicked and foolish and unbelieving. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah led the nation down a downward spiral into perdition. And eventually the Babylonians conquered them and destroyed the city and burned the temple and sent God's people into exile in the, in the land of Babylon. This season of judgment was also a season of denial because Jeremiah during this period for decades was proclaiming to these people the need to repent, that there's, that there's still time, at least for, for a season, 
there was still time to repent, to amend their ways, to turn back to the Lord, to put their trust in Him. The, the Lord said, chapter 7, verse 5, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So there were opportunities, even at certain points, even if it was just the idea that they could surrender to the Babylonians and perhaps shorten the time of their captivity and the Lord would bring them back and so on and so forth. There were numerous offers of grace and restoration and of, uh, of just opportunities to reduce the amount of judgment that was coming. It happened again and again and as we heard in our text, they stiffened their neck, they refused to heed and obey these offers of grace. And so this was a season of denial. They thought they were okay. You had the, the lying words of the prophets and the priests and the teachers and the religious leaders of that day. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. God will protect His temple. He did it in the days of Hezekiah. He protected the temple. And He'll protect it again. And so we can't be worried that these foreign nations are going to destroy the temple or the, the city of Jerusalem. There's no way we can be conquered because we have the temple. We are God's people. And God will protect us no matter what. And so these people were expecting good things. Chapter 8, verse 15, we looked for peace, but no good came. We looked for a time of health, and there was trouble. And the snorting of the horses of the Babylonian armies that God had raised up came upon them, and they were shocked. They were surprised. We see their surprise in the second half of verse 19, where Jeremiah is reflecting upon the cry of these Jews, of the daughter of God's people, the daughter of Jeremiah's own people, Jerusalem, they're crying out, uh, is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? It says they're crying from a far country. So he's envisioning them having been taken into captivity in Babylon, and he's envisioning them crying out and still being perplexed. Even after they've been warned for decades, even after the judgment comes, they're in Babylon and they're still perplexed. They're still wondering why they didn't receive the peace and the goodness and the health that they thought that they deserved as God's people. Uh, how could the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem? Isn't the Lord in Zion? Isn't this God's covenant nation, covenant people? Is not her king in her? They're perplexed. They're confused. They're in a state of denial even when they're in Babylon. And, and this astonishes Jeremiah. But we're told eventually this season of denial, even on through the, into the captivity, leads to a season of despair. God's people in captivity eventually realize that they've missed their opportunity. Verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. We didn't recognize that season of opportunity. We didn't recognize that it was a harvest. We were worried about other things, concerned about all these earthly circumstances, and we didn't heed 
the words of God and we didn't take our opportunity. And that opportunity has come and gone. And here we are crying in a foreign land and we are not saved. We are not delivered. We've been judged. And we're told that this is such a hopeless situation that whereas God had initially been calling Jeremiah to proclaim this conditional promise of restoration, uh, again, chapter 7, verse 5, if you repent, essentially, I'll restore you. I'll bring you back to your land. I'll let you stay in the land. But eventually, you can see in chapter 7 that uh, if you look at verse 16, the Lord eventually says to Jeremiah, therefore, do not pray for this people nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. They will be sent away into Babylon. They will not be saved and delivered from this judgment. And stop praying to the contrary. Now that's not often that God tells His people to stop praying for certain people, whether it be an individual or a collection of individuals, a a corporate entity like a nation or a church. That's not frequent. It's very rare. And quite frankly, it's probably very rare that God would need to command someone to stop praying. Because our biggest problem typically is not that we're praying too much or we're praying for too many of the wrong people, but that we're not praying enough. But Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was such a prayer warrior that the Lord eventually had to say, enough, I'm not changing my mind on this, and you need to stop interceding. These people are not saved and they're not going to be saved from this captivity. Uh, It was a season of despair and a season of anguish and astonishment for the prophet Jeremiah. We see that in chapter 8, verse 18. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. So Jeremiah is not cold-hearted as he's watching all of this happen. He's not the frozen chosen. He's not just sitting there in his ivory tower um, writing treatises on God's providence and God's judgment and the doctrine of hell. He is filled with sorrow. He needs comfort. He's faint. He's weak. He's impacted by what has happened to his countrymen. As he, as it were, sees these visions and, and hears these visions of the words of the daughter of his people, Where is the Lord? Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. We are not saved. The hurt and the judgment upon God's people causes hurt in the heart of Jeremiah because they're his people and he loves them. In verse 21, the hurt of the daughter of my people, for that I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. And what is so astonishing for Jeremiah the prophet? It is this, that salvation is there. It's there. It's available. The balm is in Gilead. God's people are hurt. They're wounded. Uh, they're, They're 
on their deathbed, and yet the cure is there, the balm in Gilead to cure their wound, to heal them. There's a physician there, the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ as it were, God in Christ through the promises of God are present. The means of grace are there. The ordinances of worship are there at the temple, the tabernacle. You've got the altar with the animal sacrifices pointing to the blood of Christ. All of these things are there. The balm in Gilead is there. The physician is there. But there is no recovery for the health of God's people. They're not saved. They should be saved in terms of the outward ordinances of grace being present there. They could be saved, should be saved, but they're not saved. And he's astonished at this. He's astonished of someone who would die of thirst sitting next to a pool of clean, drinkable water. He's astonished at someone who would die of hunger sitting at a table with an elaborate feast right in front of him. He's astonished. He's filled with anguish. Chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So Jeremiah is weeping. He's affected by this. He has sympathy. He has tenderness of heart toward these lost people who have missed their opportunity and who are not saved. Well, that's the meaning of our text. Let's consider the primary doctrine of our text. And that is this. That there is a temporary season for repentance and salvation after which all hope is lost. There is a temporary season for repentance and salvation after which all hope is lost. Well, let's explore that doctrine. Let's clarify and demonstrate that from the Scriptures as a whole. First, we're speaking of a temporary season of repentance and salvation. What do we mean by salvation? Well, we mean deliverance. Now, that word salvation or the term deliverance can be used in a variety of contexts in the Word of God. Sometimes it's used to describe a corporate deliverance. The deliverance of God's church from calamity or judgment. The deliverance of God's people as a nation. We can use that term in reference to the deliverance from Babylon that didn't happen, right? There's a sense in which part of what our text is saying in chapter 8, verse 20, is that God's people had an opportunity to repent, but they didn't take the opportunity, and collectively, they were not saved or delivered from Babylonian exile. The judgment of God came upon them as a nation, as a covenant people, and they weren't saved from it. That term salvation obviously can be used in another way. A way that's perhaps more familiar to us in terms of individual or personal salvation from sin and from the consequences of sin. And so, it's not only applicable to the Jews as a a whole, as a church or as a nation there in Judea with Jerusalem as the capital and they're taken into Babylonian exile and they're not saved from that invasion. But it can also be used with respect to the individuals in Judah who were not saved 
from their unrepentant hearts of sin. They were not saved from the guilt of sin. They were not saved from the power of sin. And in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, where we see much more of an emphasis on corporate entities, uh, because of course it's taking place over such a long period of time, whereas the New Testament is just happening in the first century. So the Old Testament tends to emphasize the corporate aspect of divine judgment and blessing. And so you see that the corporate deliverance, or lack thereof, is frequently associated and really dovetails with the individual deliverance or lack thereof among the people of God. And so if you look at Psalm 95, you can see the Lord speaking about the generation that died in the wilderness under Moses. And Psalm 95, uh, verses 7 and 8, Today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And it goes on to say, verse 10, For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know My ways. So I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. Now that was a corporate judgment. Not every single person in that generation went to hell. There's some sense in Psalm 90 that a number of them were converted even as they reflected upon the corporate judgment of God. But 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that with most of them, God was not well pleased. They died in the wilderness. They went to hell. And so, for the most part, in general terms, that corporate judgment went along with the individual damnation of most of the people. And Hebrews chapter 3 quotes Psalm 95 And again, Psalm 95 has the corporate emphasis about God declaring, you're not getting in to my promised land. And Hebrews 3 applies it to individual salvation. And you see it flows into Hebrews 6. We'll get to that. But God's saying to individuals, you've rejected. You're not entering into heaven. You're not entering into the heavenly promised land. Because after quoting that passage, Hebrews 3 verse 12, He says, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you individual. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart, singular. An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. He's quoting Psalm 95. Today if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. So he's saying that this corporate Judgment, the lack of salvation or deliverance on a corporate level for the Israelites under Moses is connected with the lack of deliverance on an individual level. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So you see, salvation here involves corporate deliverance. It involves individual personal deliverance and salvation from sin. And it's the latter half of that that is most troubling to the prophet Jeremiah. Because you have people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and these are people that were saved individually, but they weren't saved corporately from the exile, and God goes with them and blesses them in Babylon and brings back His people and reforms them and refines them in the furnace of affliction and of of chastisement. And so, Jeremiah is not weeping fountains of tears simply because 
some godly people are going to go to Babylon. He's weeping fountains of tears because some ungodly people are going to go to hell. And that's the sense in which we mean salvation. When we say there is a temporary season for repentance and salvation after which all hope is lost. What do we mean by repentance? Why don't we just say there's a temporary season for salvation after which all hope is lost? Why is it that the summary of the doctrine of this text uh, includes the word repentance? Why have we done that? There is a temporary season for repentance and salvation after which all hope is lost. Well, the reason is, quite frankly, is that repentance is necessary for salvation. There is no salvation apart from repentance. From experiencing a change of mind where we turn away from sin and from self-righteousness and from self in general and turn to the Lord, trusting in Him, receiving His mercy and devoting ourselves in thankful obedience to Him. If we have not repented, we are not saved. And we need to emphasize this because Jeremiah needed to emphasize this because what was being preached and proclaimed in his day is not much different than the nonsense that is proclaimed in our own day in so many sectors of the Christian church where salvation is nothing more than asking Jesus into your heart. No mention, in many cases, of even mentioning sin. Maybe some reference to forgiveness of sin, but it's just asking Jesus into your heart, making a decision for the Lord. But there's no sense of what that decision involves. It involves repentance. And there were lying words that were being proclaimed in Jeremiah's day. We saw in Jeremiah 7, 5, and 6, and 7, that the Lord was giving Jeremiah a message of a conditional promise of salvation. Now we're thinking here of the corporate deliverance as the emphasis, but it it applies to, to all manner of salvation. Repent and be saved. If you repent, you'll be saved. If you don't repent, you won't be saved. Thoroughly amend your ways. It's not saying clean yourself up for God, but it's saying that if you truly turn from self and sin and self righteousness to the Lord, then you will amend your ways and your doings. And if you don't, then you're not saved. You won't be saved corporately. If it's not happening at a corporate level, you won't be delivered from that judgment. You won't be saved individually because all true faith is repentant faith. It's not repentance that justifies us, but all true saving faith is accompanied by repentance. Turning away from sin, from the love of sin, from the practice of sin. And that's the emphasis of the message God gives to Jeremiah. But then in chapter 7, verse 8, notice, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. So what are the lying words? Well, we go back to verse 4. Do not trust in these lying words. Saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. What's the lie here? What's the false doctrine? Well, it's the idea that because you're part of the church, you come to church, you're here in the New Testament temple. In the Old Testament, they had a temple in Jerusalem. We have corporate worship today, the temple of the Lord. Because you participate in that, because you're involved in that, 
because you have some attachment or affiliation to that, whether by virtue of your, your parents devoting you to the Lord in baptism or by way of your own profession in some sense, whatever it is, you're thinking that I'm safe here in God's house. I'm safe all the people out there that are doing whatever they're doing and rebelling against God in an open life of scandalous and atheistic living. Uh, I'm safe from God's judgment because I'm in here. I'm in the temple of the Lord. And nothing could be further from the truth. The only safe refuge that you could have is in Jesus Christ. You need to repent. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will likewise perish with everybody else out there. Uh, it's, it's a lie. This complacency, this presumption, this mantra, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, I'm a good Christian, I go to church. It, it's nonsense, my friends. It's, it's a lying message of complacency. And of course, many churches reinforce this because the people in the pews are putting money in the plates and on it goes. And my friends, it's, it's, it's a vicious cycle and he says don't trust in those lying words if you are living in sin the practice of sin you're stealing or murdering you're committing adultery you're looking at pornography and engaging in sexual sin if we could apply it to our own day and our own circumstances you're swearing falsely you're not keeping your vows to the church to your spouse uh, whatever it is your promises to creditors, whatever promise, you're not keeping your promises, you're cheating on your taxes, you're walking after other gods, loving money, loving pleasure, prioritizing this, that, and the other over God and His kingdom. He says, then don't come and stand before me. Chapter 7, verse 10. You come and stand before me in this house, living for yourself, living in sin, cherishing bitterness and hatred for other people. I mean, we could go down the list of sins, but you come and you put on a show. And God says, go look where I used to have my tabernacle in Shiloh. And it's leveled to the ground. That's going to be you. That's going to be Jerusalem. And that's going to be any individual who believes in these lying words that you can be saved without repentance. That believes in the false peace that's described in chapter 8. People are given to covetousness. They're dealing falsely. And what are the religious leaders doing? Verse 11, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Or as the King James says, lightly. They preach a shallow gospel. They don't get that seed of the kingdom under the surface. Because they know if they do, it's liable to be the case that many people that are worshiping and tithing and keeping the church looking good externally are going to be revealed to have a stony heart underneath. And we wouldn't want that. Uh, the self-interest of the religious leaders here. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Uh, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not, says the prophet. They didn't even know how to blush. Saying and doing things that should cause all of us to be undone like the prophet Isaiah and humbled and embarrassed for ourselves. And yet, they go on like horses running into the battle, just charging into destruction and judgment. 
without repentance, without a change of heart and mind that results in a change of direction and a change of conduct, there is no personal salvation. Those whom God saves from the guilt of sin, He saves from the power of sin. Proverbs 28.13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And I have to emphasize this because there are some who think it's enough to confess their sins. It's enough to confess. And again, maybe this is just an old theme that just keeps recurring, beating a dead horse or whatever, but based on statistics, I have to keep saying it because they, they tell us that pornography and sexual sin is and continues to be a huge problem, not just in society, but in the church. If you are continuing in that, the Bible says all adulterers and fornicators God will judge. It is a damnable pattern of sin that reflects a heart that is not saved. Uh, Could it be that a Christian backslides and just continues without repentance? Well, yeah, maybe, but if you go to the doctor and there's a 95% chance that you have cancer, they're going to diagnose you with cancer. And and if you want to show that you don't have cancer, eventually that may come out. You may be a 5%er, but for my purposes as a preacher, I have to assume the 95%. That if you have not repented, if you're continuing in it and you're not stopping, you're just confessing, but you're not forsaking, you're not pulling out all the stops, people are giving you counsel of what to do to stop, and you're not taking those actions, then hear the warning of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 19. It speaks of the one who hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. And then King James concludes this verse with the translation, adding drunkenness to thirst. So my heart, my sinful fleshly heart of sin, is dictating my life. And I'm obeying that heart of sin. I am subjecting myself to it. I'm satisfying that thirst for lust and evil and sinful satisfaction. And I'm going along with it and satisfying that, adding drunkenness to thirst. And, and, and that's exactly what sin does. Uh, wine and adultery destroy the heart according to, uh, is it, Hosea, I think, makes that point. So, understand, without repentance, you need to amend your ways. You need to turn to Christ and believe in Him, not just for forgiveness, but for life-transforming, sanctifying grace. And you need to do that, because if you don't, you will be like these people. We are not saved. What about the term season? There's a temporary season for repentance and salvation, after which all hope is lost. Well, If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this is agricultural imagery that is frequently used in reference to salvation in the Bible. Uh, Sowing and plowing, planting and watering, fertilizing and pruning, harvesting and gathering. Jesus says one sows and another reaps. There are times of sowing, there are times of gathering and harvesting. And that's the idea here, that the means of grace are like seeds that are being planted. And then as Hebrews 6 says, then the the rain falls on your land and the means of grace, the Word and the ordinances of Christ in personal 
and family and public worship, these things uh, are received. Just like Jesus said in John 6 to the unconverted people, He said, your heavenly Father, or the heavenly Father is sending bread from heaven. Uh, and they were rejecting that bread. But the bread from heaven comes. The rain from heaven comes. The seed is sown. And it's an agricultural image here. And we know in terms of agricultural seasons that they are temporary. It's a temporary season. It's something that comes and goes. It's something that eventually at a certain point in the year is past and is ended. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. And what this is telling us is that there are seasons of repentance and salvation that come into the lives of those who come in contact with the means of grace, with the word of the gospel and the ordinances of Christ by which He saves sinners through His Holy Spirit. There are seasons of opportunity. Your life is a temporary season. And there are people in hell who right now would be saying, my life is past and ended and I am not saved. Their life came and went. It was in itself a season, an opportunity. It was appointed for them to die once and then came the judgment and they're in hell. Their life, as James says in James chapter 4, verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Jesus tells a parable of a rich fool who spends his entire life filling his barns with crops and resources and then God comes to him and says, thou fool, you fool, what are you doing? You spend all your life amassing all these things and then you die and your life will be required of you this night, he says, and you're going to hell. You're not rich toward God. You're not right with God Himself. You don't know the day that God has appointed for your death. And if you're outside of Christ, that, is, that ought to be a source of fear. It's a legitimate source of fear. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Jeremiah famously prophesied to one of the false prophets, this year you shall die. How do you know that's not true of you or of me? How do you know that your foot will not slip in due time and that these things are not hastening upon you? Nobody is guaranteed tomorrow, much less today. We need to take stock of the temporary nature of our lives, also our health and our strength and our minds, our mental capacities. The Scriptures say, remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come in which you have no pleasure, before the difficult days come. People say, well, I'm going to put off religion. I'm going to put off exploring the Gospel and thinking about these convicting words from the Scriptures, I'm going to put that off till later. I'm going to convert on my deathbed. 
Now, most people don't think of it that way. What they say is, well, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll do it next week. But you see, all Satan has to do is get you to put it off. I mean, if he gets you to put, off, put it off for 10 minutes and then in 10 minutes you put it off for another 10 minutes, he never actually has to persuade you that you're going to wait till your deathbed or you're going to wait till, till there's no time left. He just has to persuade you to keep putting it off for something else that seems more significant, more pressing. But you see, eventually your health, your strength, your mental capacity will wane. It will be reduced as you get older. And on your deathbed, who knows if you'll even know what's happening because they'll be pumping morphine into your bloodstream. Who knows at that point, at the 11th hour, praise God, some people are saved at that time. That's their spiritual season of opportunity. But, but it's rarely the case. And it's, it's very unlikely that you're even going to be in a position to think through the substantial truths of the gospel while you're wasting away on your deathbed. The lazy man does not plow because of the cold, and then in the summer harvest, he is impoverished. Proverbs 20, verse 4. Could it be the case that you will be on your deathbed hardly able to think about much of anything other than this? My health, my strength... My mental capacity is ended and I am not saved. Interest in spiritual things is often a temporary season. We find examples of this throughout the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 preaches to the philosophers and the uh, interested hearers at the Areopagus in Athens. And he preaches the Gospel. He calls them to repentance Some people put their trust in the Lord at that time, but we're also told, verse 32 of Acts 17, uh, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Others said, well, we'll we'll hear it again. We'll, We'll think about this later. We've got to go run to something else that's more pressing. We'll hear you again on this matter. We're never told that Paul ever came back to Athens or that they ever had uh, interest to seek him out. They had an interest then, and they needed to strike while the iron was hot, but they didn't. We see something similar, Acts 24, verse 25. Paul is before Felix, the civil magistrate. Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. A convenient time. My friends, there's only one convenient time to believe in Christ, and that's now. And the devil doesn't want you to believe now because he knows this is the only time. I mean, um, it's like with Alice in Wonderland. But, I mean, if you just keep putting it off till tomorrow, it's never going to happen. You need to believe now, today, at this very moment. Because... If you don't take your convenient time, Satan will take his and yours will be whisked away. And and perhaps it's the case that that you'll be like Felix. We're never told that he ever called Paul back in to hear the gospel from him. He had an interest then. He said, I'm going to put it on my calendar. I'm going to do it. I have more important things right now, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow up on this. But as with so many things in our lives, he didn't follow up and it just went to nothing and he's probably in hell right now probably saying my interest passed and was ended and I am not saved we could say the same for a number of things I'm hastening to a conclusion here but your access to the means of grace to the word of God 
Read Amos 8 when God says, if you don't use it, you lose it, and I will send a famine of my word upon the land, and you won't be able to hear a gospel message. You won't be able to hear the law of God expounded in a convicting manner. I'll remove it. Uh, The efforts of other people to evangelize you and to bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is often a temporary season. There are people in your life, maybe parents or grandparents, and eventually they're going to die and they won't be there anymore. They'll be taken out of the way and they won't be evangelizing you. They won't be praying for you anymore. Perhaps there are people that have been trying to share the gospel with you, but eventually they, they... come to grips with the fact, well, this person has been rejecting it for so long, it's time to shake the dust off my sandals and move on. I'm not going to cast the holy things before the dogs or the pearls before swine. I've tried time and time again. There are other people that are more eager and interested. I'm going to go to them. And, and, and you won't have those people prayerfully evangelizing you that you have right now that want you to be saved. And the same could be said for God. His Spirit does not strive forever with the children of men. Genesis 6, verse 3. Eventually, he gets to the point with the children of Israel in the wilderness. He says, you shall not enter my rest. Time's up. I'm moving on. I'm going to bring your children in. But, but your opportunity is over. Remember when he stopped speaking to King Saul. And Saul inquired of the Lord. And he heard not a single word from God. Remember when King Herod, who killed John the Baptist, inquired of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus answered him not a word. His season of opportunity ended, and my friends, this world is a season of opportunity, and this world will come to an end. And we're told that five of the ten virgins in the parable of the virgin, the the ten virgins, the five foolish virgins, tried to get into the marriage feast. And the door was shut and it was not opened. My friends, Hebrews 6 tells us that not that God lacks the power to save, but at a certain point, He just shuts the door, even in this life. People that refuse to come to repentance and reject the clear light of the Gospel, there are times when God simply says as a decision of His will, not a reflection of His lack of power, He says, It is impossible that you will come to repentance. You have crucified the Son of God afresh. You've tasted of the good Word of God and the powers to the age to come. You've fallen away. It is impossible for you to be renewed again to repentance. That is a real thing that happens. And if anybody says, well, but God can do anything again. Yes, He can do anything. Therefore, He can do that. And He can shut the doors of salvation even in this life. A frightening thing. Now, of course, when He shuts those doors of salvation, He does it by giving a person over to their own wicked unbelief. So it's not the person who says, I want to believe. I believe in Christ, but did God shut the door? No, that's not the person that Hebrews 6 is talking about. The person who's been given over doesn't give a rip doesn't take action, doesn't take the kingdom of God by force, doesn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't want to believe, doesn't want to repent. But it still happens. And uh, just very briefly, some application. Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow way, the narrow gate. 
for many will seek to enter at that last day and will not be able. They will be, just like the people in Noah's day, pounding on the door of the ark. It was shut. There will be people, not that they have a true desire to repent and believe, but they will be clamoring to get in to the gates of heaven to avoid the judgment of hell. And they will not be able, Jesus says. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be like the people who had to confess in despair. The harvest is past. The summer has ended. And we are not saved. The great physician is here. The balm of Gilead is here. Believe on Christ. Confess your sins. Devote yourself. Surrender yourself into His hands. And extend that to your children as well. There ought to be an urgency for the salvation of your children. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up your children in the beginning of their way. That's the best translation of that verse. Train them up in the beginning of their way so that when they're old, they will not depart from Him. Statistics, which are of debatable relevance, but statistics show children that grow up in the church, they typically profess faith they typically are saved by a certain point. And if they're not, and they get deep into their teenage years, it doesn't look good. The chances don't look good. Now, obviously, God can save anyone at any time. But God has an ordinary pattern of saving covenant children. There is an ordinary season of conversion among covenant children. Not that He can't do different things at different times, but train up a child in the beginning of His way. Now is the time. Today is the day to double your efforts in prayerfully evangelizing, discipling, and disciplining your children and pointing them to Christ. Because you don't want to get to the end of that ordinary season of the conversion of covenant children and say, and have to say, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and they are not saved. You want to avoid that with all of your might. You can't save your children, but you can sow and water and fertilize and labor and pray for God to give the increase, but you don't want to be in that position. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and they are not saved. There needs to be an urgency to train them up in the beginning of their way. And for that matter, friends, family members, neighbors, anyone and everyone, even fellow members of the church, exhort one another while it is called today, lest you be deceived, lest you be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that You would awaken us and give us urgency to take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the kingdom of heaven by storm, to press into it, to not be content to be on the fringes, to not be content to schedule a time to think about our eternity, but that we would do so now, here, today. And that today would be the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.